Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listener, to episode 81 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David C. Noe. I'm here in Vomitorium West with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? Well, I think as I told you earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm running on fumes tonight. Yes. I feel that second wind uh, coming on. So, so you're I, mixing the fumes I with mix, the second wind. Yes, I'm, I'm burning the fumes and the second the second wind. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here, but um, I'm feeling better as we oh, good. get into this. Good. Yes. Any yeah. lu- any lucubrations? Luca- uh, no lucubrations this you evening. Were, you were yeah. burning the midnight oil. No, no, it, it was, I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything productive. It was just. Oh, yeah. It was a, a uh, embattled night of insomnia. Yes. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. 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 And we. Uh, how's the weather doing here, Winkle? <laughs> this is late April, mid to late April, yeah. but it feels smarchy. Than smart, smart. It's it's downright Februaryan yes. out there. Oh, it's brutal. Yes. That's and that's not helping. My, that's not helping my. Uh, it tends me to, uh, me tonight either. Yeah. No, it tends to bring the moods down. It does. But this podcast, the Octogesimal at uh, prima, the Octogesimal at prima, eighty first yes. <laughs> podcast, <laughs> is going to bring spirits up. That's right. Way back up. All right. All right, so what are we talking about tonight, Dave? Well, we got to start with some Cordregenda. Oh, did we, did we make some mistakes? No, you didn't. Oh, I did. You did. Okay, yeah. I made two mistakes, please. two howlers last week. Really? Well, correct them, please. Okay. So first of all, you asked me for a good Latin term for mascot. Yes. And I said, oh, you know, maybe sectator, which is a good word. Yeah. Homunculus. But I also said aseclor. No such word. No such word? And it nagged me. It bugged me as I smarched my way home that so evening. So you had some insomnia over oh, this Oh, boy, word. did I. Yeah. <laughs> I looked it up, and I was looking for the word asacla. You see, you were very close. You were yeah, in, but no you were cigar. In that ball, you were in that ballpark. You were at shortstop. Yeah, but Latin doesn't function with ballparks. But you're right. Exactly. <laughs> we we got to be precise. Here. So this is where as, we get the big money. Asicla. Asicla. So, A-S-S-E-C-L-A. So someone, like a, a, a close follower? Yeah, like an asicla. That's right. Yeah. From uh, Sequor to follow. Right. Adsecor. So, you know, um, Batman to Robin. Mm-hmm. Aquaman to all of the super friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, whatever, I got you. Whatever it is. <laughs> right. George to Jerry. I got you. I got you. I got you. All right. Yeah. So how? I mean, did you look at like how this was? Was is this a is this a neo Latinism? Because I mean, the no, Roman, it's a it's a classical word. But what I mean, what did they, what did that exactly describe? They didn't have like mascots running around in the in the arena. Um, something right? like a um, a sycophant. A sycophant. Yeah, a kiss up. You know. It's, okay. I I didn't check. Now you put me on the spot. Okay, we're gonna have another corrigendum <laughs> next week. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Yes. In Ramo and say it is probably a Plautine or Terence word. Okay. For the, okay. the kiss up, you know, the running around the yeah. scene trying to. Curry favors. I gotcha. gotcha. Mm. So nobody in some like, kind of ridiculous costume with an oversized head tra- leading cheers. It could be. It could, it could be. The Sparty. The Sp- yep. Yeah, Sparty. Right, right, right. Okay. And the second Cordregendum. Yeah. I said off the cuff last week that um, Pythagoras's appearance in Ovid is book 13. No. 15. It's book 15. book 15. You probably knew that. I did not know Why that. Why didn't you correct me? I did, I did not know that. And again, I, I, I would be, I'd be much um, you know, softer on it. I mean, 13, you're pretty close. You round up, you're there. Yeah, I'm as right. far from book 15 as the ratio 6 is from the 8. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> A little early for that, maybe. All right. <laughs> 
So we got to. Uh, so we're talking some Ovid tonight, we right? We are. Yeah. Yes, it's one more Ovidian vignette. Yes, one. Just one. And then we're done. We're no, done no, no, no. Oh. But we usually say two more Ovidian vignettes. Yes. Tonight we really just have one. One more. Right. It's the character of Pythagoras, mm-hmm. the philosopher, uh, combined with the Roman king Numa. And how are these two going to go together? Like. Peanut butter and chocolate? Who I, knows? I don't. I don't see these coming together at all. This and, is weird. And the theme is vegetarianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. set aside your bacos. <laughs> set aside my pork rinds. Yes, your um, your huggable portions. That's your huggable portions. Yes. And we're gonna go full on vegetarian tonight. This is this might get a little weird. It's it? gonna get very weird. All right. So let's get right into it and let's begin with the shout out. Yes. I'm gonna hand this one off to you, Jeff. Yes. This goes to one uh, Kara Bergeron. Bergeron. I think that's how you pronounce that. I right? think it is. Bergeron. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, Kara is a Latin teacher in the Portland, 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 <laughs> Oregon metro area. Um, she says that uh, outside of being a parent and um, being married, teaching is the hardest job that she's ever done. Um, but she loves it. She teaches Advanced Latin 1 and 2 and 3 at St. Stephen's Academy, 9th through 11th grade. Yeah. So one of the, one of our torchbearers. That's right. Yeah. Kara's a friend of mine. Her uh, her son was a student of mine. Hmm. Lovely chap. Uh, very uh, gifted artist and athlete also. Incredible athlete. Uh, Kara says, I am a faithful listener to Ad Nauseam and have downloaded some episodes multiple times. Well, that, that explains our numbers right there, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and she, she, she knows that she loved the Odyssey episodes. Well, go on, okay. go on. Yeah, she, um, she likes the interviews, Susan Weisbauer, Dr. Ed Watts, um, love the Odyssey episodes. Say that part again, and the... And the Odyssey episodes. Quote, which I loved. Which I loved. <sighs> oh, man, that makes, uh, Kara, that makes us feel so, yes. uh, so good. She right. goes on, the podcast has been extremely helpful to me because I have come very late to the classics game and I struggle to catch myself up on all of the history, literature, poetry I have not read. Mm. Before I taught at St. Stephen's, I spent many years homeschooling my children and doing administrative work for a nationwide tutoring program for homeschoolers. Excellent. She also says that she's um, she's a fan of the Latin speaking uh, commun- and learning community. Right. And she finds uh, it very incredibly warm and welcoming to neophytes like herself. She's never interacted with me. No. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, right. Uh, have you actually, have you actually <laughs> done that? Uh, and very patient, uh, patient besides. Um, she says, I have learned a little or a lot from every single person who has taken time to speak with me in Latin in, uh, or in English above. About Latin. Yes. Now yeah. you want to read this self-congratulatory part? Uh, the, the, the very next bit here? Yeah, yeah. Yes. It says, thanks to uh, you both for being a funny and informed source of popularizing the classics. And thank you to Dave, that is Dr. Noe. Glad she clarified. Right. For offering such high quality courses in Latin authors each week. I absolutely loved the Theodore Beza class she just finished. And she looks forward to continuing reading Beza again in the uh, their, their, your cohort. Right. Cohort. Yes. Yes. So we, we put on heavy outdoor jackets. That are kind of brown. You've seen these before, like Carhartt jackets. Yes, yeah. we, we are a cohorting Carhartt. <laughs> you just you just came up with that, didn't I you? Did. Not bad, stupid, not, not bad. but yeah. impromptu. Right. <laughs> well done. Thank you, uh, Dave. You got our opening quote. I do. This comes from an incredible scholar, uh, Elaine Phantom or Laney, as she liked to be called. <laughs> If you met Elaine Phantom, would you say, hey, lady? I would not. No, she probably hasn't watched Seinfeld. She's one of the greats, though. She is. A Princeton professor. Uh, This woman is an incredible scholar. And this is from her uh, 2004 book, um, Ovid's Metamorphoses is the simple title. It is in the uh, Oxford Approaches to Classical Literature series. Mm -hmm. This is line 130, I'm sorry, page 131. Quote, the metamorphoses and its many narratives are like a complex necklace whose central strand sustains loops, both short and long, 
of beads of different colors and materials, which separate and rejoin the main ordered sequence at different places to create an overall symmetry. Oh, that's very nice. It's I, a complicated sentence. Yes. You you followed through on it all? Well, I, I like the metaphor of the beaded necklace. I think mm-hmm. that's a great... I mean, the, the, the metamorphoses... Um, readers and scholars have long debated about you know, how does it hold together. Right. Is it just is it just the the recurring changes the members right. that holds it all together, or is there more to it? But I like this idea of the different colored beans being able to be kind of being arranged and put next to each other and, and patterns uh, recalling right. other patterns. That's really nice. Well, I was reading this. I was wondering. Uh, I wonder if Winkle is a necklace wearer. I have never worn a necklace. Never a single necklace. Well, maybe maybe once as a kid, like a, a craft that was made. With I was some thinking string and maybe beads. some some Cecil or some kind of twine, you know, with a cross or a shell or anything on it. Like I think you know a little guitar trinket. I went through like a like a uh, um a, like a, a weekend uh a phase of hippie like, phase of, of like a Birkenstock. I like knew you hacky did. sack. Yeah, and I had a friend from Colorado gave me like uh. A necklace with some kind of stones on it. Yes, and you were there. I was there for about 36 hours. I thought, this is not me. <laughs> right? There were many sacks left unhackied. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering, though, the, the sandals, you know, were, were they like shot out of a plastic mold? Uh, no, they, they were... Like they were Birkencrocs? Bir- <laughs> Mine were the real deal. But you probably have a pair of Crocs, don't you? I, I did, I've never owned a pair of Crocs. Good for you, yeah. neither have I. <laughs> We just alienated all the croc wearers out there. Those things that look like they could be 3D printed. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> could you put any less effort into your footwear? That's what I want to know. Right, exactly. It's just another way of saying to the world that I give up. Yeah. yeah. It was either this or Ziploc bags. <laughs> hey, I get, speaking of, of bags on feet, right. when you were a kid, did you did your mom, hey, you got to put these, like, these bread bags on your feet before you stick them in the boots? Yes, because yeah. we live in Michigan. <laughs> And but, it's March all the time. But nobody does it anymore. I, I can still see the, the soldier on the Roman meal whole wheat bag uh, you know, sticking out of the top of my yeah, boots. That's what I had too. Really? Yes. That was the go-to. You put your sock in the plastic bag, bread bag. You put your the whole contraption inside the moon boot. Yeah. And then the water soaks down in and you slosh to school. <laughs> I remember them working all too well. My feet were like fire <laughs> by the time I got to gym class. or Like putting a turkey in the oven. <laughs> a little button on your foot pops out. Man, I couldn't wait to get my Crocs on after, after that walk. So people are wondering, are they going to talk about the classics at all? All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about book 15. We're going to talk about um, Ovid's take on Pythagoras. That's right. And it's, it's the character of Pythagoras's connection to Numa, right. one of the early kings of Rome. That's right, the second one. The, the second king of, of Rome. And we're going to talk, we're going to be kind of exploring what is Ovid trying to say here? How, yes. how serious are we going to take this, or is this just more game playing? Right. Okay. And it fits so nicely, I would say, with the overall theme of this podcast, which is a, you know, gorging on the classics, yes. being a gourmand, mm-hmm. because the subject is vegetarianism. Right. So the whole, uh, the whole bit here that Pythagoras gives is about eating. Yeah. What one should eat, what one should not eat. A lot about what one should not eat. Mostly about <laughs> what one should not eat. Yeah. And so we're going to get a little personal, too. We're going to ask you, you know, Winkle, about some of your dietary habits. And oh, we are? We're doing that tonight? Yeah, you don't know. Oh, gosh. Are, are, you a, are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegan? Why, if not, why not? Okay. And, and you can, you know, turn the tables uh, on, on me and stick the fork in me, so to speak. All right. And, All right. Let's, and we'll see where it goes. Let's go for it. All right. All right. So where do we begin? At the beginning? Yeah, we begin with uh, a red letter date, which actually is uh, coming up this week. 
April 21, the, right? Uh, the birthday of Rome. That's right. I think that's going to be a Thursday, isn't it, of this week? Let's see. I think yeah. that's right. Yep, Thursday. April 21, 7.53, about 10 a.m. in the morning. Is that when it, ha- it yes. happened? Yes. <laughs> Don't you know? <laughs> and what happened was uh, the founding of the city of Rome, and we get most of our information uh, about this from Marcus Terentius Varro, mm-hmm. right? So he was uh, at the end of the Republic, 116, so a little bit, he's, what, 10 years older than Cicero, yep. uh, but outlived him by 16 years, so 116 to 27 BC. And uh, it's Varro, who was an antiquarian historian, who tells us that April 21, 753, right, AUC, ab urba condita, from the founding of the city, mm-hmm. that's when it got started. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is where you know, the famous story of the, the rival brothers, Romulus and Remus, right? Correct. And, and so... Um, Reem kills, or sorry, Rom kills Reem. That's right. And uh, voila, Rome is born. That's right. And and Livy kind of, we'll, we'll talk about this at some point if yeah. we haven't already, but Livy kind of glosses over it a little bit with uh, Remo Nakato, something like that, an ablet of absolute. And when Remus was killed, yeah. you know, the show goes on. The show goes on. <laughs> Romulus eventually dies and Ovid tells his apotheosis. We should probably do an entire episode at some point on apotheoses, yeah. right? The becoming oh, of a god. Right. And uh, Livy tells us that, um, well, and Ovid picks up on this, that uh, he vanished into thin air, Romulus did. Hmm. And Ovid's metaphor, one of his many irreverent metaphors, is uh, like when you, you're whipping a sling with a lead ball, yeah. you know, on the battlefield, as, you know, we often do. Of course. And you let it fly. If it gets going fast enough, the friction, according to Ovid, will cause it to melt in midair. Really? I don't think so. Okay. But this is what... This is one explanation that was given. That's the way Romulus disappeared. That's the metaphor he uses? Yeah. That is so, it's so I mean, that's, that's one heck of a slingshot. It is, but it also seems very undignified for Romulus. Like, <laughs> he melted like an ice cube? Do you think, so, do you think I was going to just stick a uh, finger in his eye? There? I kind of wonder. I don't yeah. know. Interesting. Okay. All, All right. right. So, uh, so Romulus dies. Uh, he rules from 753 to 715, and he is... Uh, replaced by Numa Pompilius. Which is the guy we're talking about tonight. Yes, he's the guy, Numa Pompilius, right? Mm-hmm. And so we mentioned a few episodes ago the uh, mnemonic device, right? How do you remember the seven kings of Rome? And How does this go? I don't it's remember It's ramen this. noodles, toss and turn, save them. <laughs> Did you come up with that? Does no, that I learned, learned this from one Samuel Husky. Oh, I, yeah, Samuel yeah, Husky. Sam, if you're still listening, I owe this to you. Your compadre so. from grad school. That's right. Yes. He's now at the University of Oklahoma yeah. and uh, a very accomplished scholar. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, I learned this from him. Ramen noodles, toss in turn, save them. Save them. Romulus, Numa, Tullius, Hostilius, Ancus, Marcius, Lucius, Tarquinius, Priscus, Servius, Tullius. There's the save. And Lucius, Tarquinius, Superbus. There's the them. Right. Now, do you have a sense of like where... On the scale, where we go from kind of quasi-history to kind of more right. concrete. Uh, well, you know how I am. Yeah. I, I tend to take things at face value because I think it makes life more rewarding. I don't know if I'm somewhere between uh, gullible and credulous. I mm-hmm. don't know. Uh, we did an episode that's actually done quite well, History and the Trojan War. Yeah. Remember Joaquim Latash and Dennis Page yeah, yeah, yeah. way back when? Right. And there is a, you know, a, a sweet... Uh, historical nougaty core to the story of the Trojan War. Right, right, right. So I, I'm inclined to believe maybe the names aren't precise, the dates aren't precise, maybe Romulus didn't melt into thin air like a lead ball. Yeah. I think a lot of this is is true in, okay. in some respects. And there's archaeological evidence, the middle of the 8th century BC, uh, you know, around 750, 
the the hill is uh, the Capitoline Hill is occupied in the right spot. Yeah, and you got the and you got the the huts on the Palatine. That's right. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah, generally speaking, around seven fifty three. That seems to be fairly... Something got started. Something got started. But whether it happened in late April at 9.54 a.m. 10, Jeff, right. 10. 10, it, 10 exactly. 10. 10 o'clock yeah. um, is maybe... Uh, who knows? Okay. Okay. All right. So we had uh, we had Elaine, Laney Phantom, right? Yep. And now we have what? Who's next? Hello, Numa. <laughs> Hello, Numa. Oh, right. That's good, yes. Thanks. So uh, Livy tells us uh, some things about this King Numa, mm-hmm. right? The second person, the noodles of the ramen noodles toss and turn save them. Mm-hmm. Why don't you read a little bit about uh, Livy and what he did? From, right. I mean about Numa, Numa. from Livy. Livy says, uh, he was as conversant as anyone in that age could be with all divine and human law. His master is given as Pythagoras of Samos. Astrogen speaks of no other. But this is erroneous. For it is generally agreed that it was more than a century later in the reign of Servius Tullius that Pythagoras gathered round him crowds of eager students in the most distant part of Italy, in the neighborhood of Metapontum, Heraclea, and Crotona. Right. So Livy says, that's the tradition, but nah, 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 nah. Well, he, he says the tradition of Numa being a student of Pythagoras is, is nah, 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 nah. Right. So the, he, he's the, the chronology's off. Yes. Okay. And so um, Elaine Phantom makes the point that, as we'll see in our closing quote... This evening, as well as the billion-dollar idea I promised last week, remember? Oh, yeah. You never forced me to deliver on that. You're going to have to do it tonight. I'm, I'm ready. We've okay. written it into the script, so Excellent. it's coming. Good deal. Uh, but anyway, um, Numa, right, is taken as historical by Livy, but the chronology is wrong for him to have been Pythagoras' student. Right. Phantom says everybody knew this by Ovid's time. Mm-hmm. In fact, everybody knew it, you know, in the time of Cicero. Right. But Ovid doesn't really care. Or is he just using that, that um, he's like purpose, purposefully being mistaken for the sake of a joke? Is he, I mean, well, that is, could is, be. Is he making fun of the whole thing? That could be. I've noticed something recently as I try to catalog dates in my mind, because that's something I like to do. I like to keep track of who did what when, yeah. right? And um, <clears throat> the, the, the birth and death of uh, St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas, their careers overlap Almost identically, but if you look real closely at the chronology, it's off by one year. Ooh, okay. By, by one year. So I have just deliberately decided to ignore that <laughs> and treat their birth dates as, you know, identical because I want to be able to remember it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what the ancients did all the time too, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So-and-so died and so-and-so was born in that same year and so-and-so was a student of another person, even if they never really were in the same geographical location or century, because their ideas were so similar. Yeah. And that is something that the ancients liked that, you know, moderns don't. Right, right, right. But yeah. I think we've lost something there. Oh, you think so? So our kind of our, you think the kind of the need for that kind of precision. Right. Um, what's what's lost is, is um, there's something in the bigger picture that's yeah. lost. Okay. So let's think in sports terms. Okay, let's right? do it. So, uh, you know, the careers of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, mm-hmm. two great basketball players, overlapped by I don't know how many years. A handful of years. Three to five years, something right. like that. They they played against each other. Maybe it was even longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's much more convenient to see Kobe as Jordan's continuator and just to say, you know, when Jordan stopped playing, yes. then Kobe began playing because right. they were so often compared to each other and similar gifts and skills and friendship and ignore the fact that they were contemporaries yeah. and just take a terminus for each, yeah. a, a post-quem and an odd-quem. Yeah, no, I think we've, we've talked about some, something similar that happens in 
in um, in music as well. Exactly. Right. I think that I can't. I I might get this wrong, but this might be like Yingve Malmstein was in an interview said, "I was born the month that Jimi Hendrix died." Right. Which is not true. No. Um. But the uh, that's not important. No. Is the idea that he's kind of he carries the mantle now. Right. Right. So. so that's a you know it's yeah. a it's a contemporary analogy. All right, all right, all right. So Numa, yep. Hello, Numa, the youngest of four sons. He was a Sabine, right? He was a Sabine, so he just lived uh, southeast of Rome, mm-hmm. a, a early competitor of Rome, right? Yep. And um, <clears throat> of course, the Latin plural of a Sab a Sabinus is uh, Sabini. Sabini, yeah. right? So then their children were called. <laughs> I don't even know where you're going with this. You're not going to say it? <laughs> Sabini babies. <laughs> Please carry on. Come oh my on. God. Sabini babies. Come all right. On. All right. All right. All right. You know yeah. you're putting that in the description. <laughs> you always write the description. That's right. All right. So you've, you've got, that, I should thank you. That was but, funny 25 years ago. That, do you remember the Beanie Baby craze? I, I do remember it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Just one step after Cabbage Patch. Yeah. Did you ever actually? Of course I, not. Okay. Just wondering. I didn't. I didn't own any or even you know look at them. But I got a good joke out of it. Yeah. The Sabini babies. All right. Anyway, he was a Sabine. Mm-hmm. He was offered the kingship and accepted it. Mm-hmm. He lived at a place called Cures, which is the origin of the term Quirites. Ah, yes, another term for <clears throat> the Roman citizens. That's right. right. Yep. And Plutarch yep. is the one who tells us that there was a Spartan connection. Mm. So uh, the the Sabines, right? The Sabini. There was a Spartan connection, according to Plutarch, and that is intended to explain why Numa was so strict, so disciplined, and a lawgiver. And like um, Solon, like Kyrgyz, Draco, Moses, Hammurabi, he is the Roman lawgiver, right? Right. He's the cult character, the cult um, individual who really gives the Roman people their identity. Yes. You know, um, Romulus establishes the people, Numa gives them... All their culture. Right. So it really starts with Numa in some degree. That's so, right. Yeah. Um, who the, as the Romans saw themselves. Okay. I that that I, um, that notion that the, the the Sabines were a Spartan colony. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you, again, is there any I don't truth know. to that? I don't know. No, the Spartans were not great colonizers. They were well. They they did colonize southern, um, you know, the boot of Italy, like Crotona and those places. They, they, they did. were down there. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. All, right. All right. And he's also known as a pacifist. Now, that does Numa not sound was. like a Spartan. No, it also doesn't sound like a Roman, does it? <laughs> no, not at all. But Numa was a pacifist in Roman terms, which means no wars of aggression. Mm. Okay. It doesn't mean no wars. No wars, but... You, just, you know, try to keep them to a minimum. Right, you don't you don't go out there and deliberately spark them. No, right, right, exactly. Right. And, you know, there has to be a real serious cause, not, you know, that someone stole your slipper. That's not a reason to declare war. Gotcha. So yep. in Roman terms, a pacifist. Now, yeah. what about Pythagoras? Well, um, what are some of the things we know about him before we get around to the Ovid and the actual vegetarianism? Well, he was from the island of Samos, which is uh, mm-hmm. today off the just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Yes. But that was very Greeky back in the day. Have right? you been to Samos? I have. Okay. I have. It was, we, um, it was a, sto- a stopover on our way to Turkey. It was very pleasant. Isn't it the birthplace of Helen? Uh, is that she's from Samos, too? I think so. Okay. But it was it was a very beautiful island. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we got rough dates for him and so forth. Yeah, 582 to 507 BC. Okay. Um, but okay, my sense of Pythagoras too is he kind of dwells in, again in the ether of ether of kind of quasi history, you know, myth, mm. mythiness. Um, probably a real Pythagoras, but definitely. But um, as much what we can kind of attach to him specifically is very difficult to do. Lots of stories made up about him, but at least a hundred years too late to have associated with Numa. 
Yes, exactly. Right. So Livy was was right right on that account. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, he went to Cretona. He went to um, uh, to Italy. Mm-hmm. He had to escape um, Polycrates' tyranny on Samos. Okay. Um, most people when they hear Pythagoras, they think they think triangles. Yeah. Right? <laughs> A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Yeah. Right? Do you one. remember first learning about that in? Uh, about seventh or eighth grade in your algebra class. I do remember the that. The Pythagorean theorem. Right. It sounds so impressive, it does. doesn't it? It does. It's one of the very few things I remember right. of, of algebra. Having never heard a word like that, yeah. Pythagorean theorem. theorem. It's like, oh, I have, I have... So impressive. Exactly. I have entered something lofty. Correct. Right. <laughs> He was a uh, you have here. He was a gymnophysicist. No, physicist? gymnophysicist. G- gymnophysicist. He was a he was a, a naked physics Th- physicist. That is possible. A naked philosopher. Okay. So there is a tradition, right, that the um, philosophers of India, the subcontinent, they practice philosophy in the nude. I mean, mm. this is historical fact. And there's some suggestion that some of these uh, wise individuals wandered westward, and had an influence on Pythagoras and other Greek philosophers. Interesting. It's an it's a connection that has long been talked about, mooted. Yeah. Um, I don't think it can be established. So, but in the so going from India to were they nude the whole? It's way? a long walk. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. May have been an umbrella or a parasol. I don't know. But this is the tradition that right. uh, that if you are it's it's about getting back to nature, right? Living secundum naturum catafus in you, living according to nature. Dispense with all human convention. And what's more conventional than clothing? Hmm. I'm not talking about you in particular, although <laughs> I could be. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a mark of human society. We've got to strip off all those layers of convention and custom and get down to the, you know, the real truth of ourselves. Uh, and per- but, but also perhaps, um, you know, like in... Like in Greek statuary, the nudity, like masculine nudity, is often meant to be reflective of the divine, correct? As well, so um, maybe a little bit of that aspect as well, right? Or it's just so hot in I India. I don't know, but that's how we came. Into, <laughs> it's how we came into the world, you know. And yes, okay, right. little philosophers. All right, all right. So he was a he was a a, a, a gymnophysicist, perhaps, yeah. perhaps, right? He founded a school mm-hmm. in uh, while he was in Cretona. Is that where? He uh, no, in Samos. In Samos, yep. okay. <clears throat> Um, uh, an ascetic, right? Right. It's extreme self-denial. Mm-hmm. This plays into the um, the no meat, right? Right. Right. Um, he founded a religious order, yeah. as well. Yeah. So the line between philosophy and religion is not distinct in antiquity. Right. It's a way of life. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, my sense of um, what I learned about Pythagoras is that it was kind of. Philosophy, you know, when we see, when we think philosophy, I think most people tend to think, you know, Socrates, Plato, yep. um, Descartes later on, right? That that um, kind of almost kind of cold rationality, but mixed with a kind of mysticism. Um, yes, and a zealous commitment to an idea. Yeah. So you can't be too detached. It's it's not about bare reason, mm-hmm. right? Right. Maybe about bare shoulders and bare other things, as we've learned. <laughs> yes. But you have to be committed to an idea, and that takes a kind of philosophical intensity. Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate at that institution, um, <clears throat> I was taught my intro philosophy course by a man named Mark Talbot. I remember him. Yes, a fine, fine teacher. Yep. And we spent three quarters of the semester on the pre-Socratics. <laughs> That's a long time. It is, but yeah. it was very, very uh, revealing. Yeah. And uh, in, 
informative, educational. I learned so much. Yeah. I once made him so angry, he uh, hurled a piece of chalk at me. Did he really? Yes. What, what, what did you do? What were you I badgering said, the I poor man? I said something philosophical. I don't know. And he, he didn't like my point, so he he hurled a piece of chalk were at you me. you slandering Anaximander or Could something? Could be. Maybe Anaximenes. <laughs> Anaxagoras. Don't get me started on Anaxagoras or Xenophanes. <laughs> I kept that piece of chalk. As a keepsake did for you, a long time. Do you still have it? I don't, oh. but I, I did for a long time because it's a badge of honor. It definitely. To, to so honk off an important philosophy professor that he whips a piece of chalk at you. That is. You could you could have incorporated that into a necklace. I guess I could. That, that would have been that would have been nice. Have you ever thrown something at a student? Never. No. 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 I've thrown a lot of rotten glances, but yeah, I, I had a actually this last week I had something um, tossed in my general direction mm. in class. So a uh, student made it, and it turned out to be. Uh, not in, in out of spite, but you know you know what a cootie catcher is? Those little yes, flappy I do. things. Yep. Uh, the student made one for my children and said, "This one will tell you which Greek god you are." <laughs> and says, "Give this to them; they'll know what to do with it." And and, and they loved it. It was great. Oh, wow, it was great. But she didn't hand it to me after class. She threw it at she me. She threw it at you. It landed on the desk. Social distancing. Maybe that's what it's it the was. The cooties. Just just thinking of, just thinking of, of safety. Yeah, right? cootie distancing. So <laughs> uh, Pythagoras engaged in a lot of strange prohibitions, didn't he? According he did. to legend. Right. Um. This, I mean, this passage. I'm, I'm sure will be reading parts of it, but um, not just vegetarianism, but no. hardcore right. vegetarianism. Don't eat beans. What was his deal with beans? Well, because uh, this is not facetiously said, because the, supposedly because they cause some kind of internal wind. <laughs> and there, this was this is this is bad. There might be some life principle. Hmm. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Don't poke a fire. Don't, you, sometimes you have to poke a fire. Don't get, poke. Don't do it, Winkle. Why? Don't poke a fire. Why not? You got. Sometimes you got to keep it going. No, because the the fire is animate also, and so to poke it is um, to give it a kind of, uh, I don't know, a kind of an insult. So you're you're kind of you're kind of courting disaster. Correct. By poking a fire. Right now, some of these things may be the you know the products of. Uh, comic playwrights in Athens that were making fun of Pythagoras. <laughs> yeah. We don't. We just don't know. Yeah. Like the turtle dropped on Aeschylus's head. Right. 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 Beware of falling turtles. Was that the title? That was. That was a good one. Yeah. The the title was a good one. Oh, that was good. And the and the episode was. Well, the episode was a good one. Yes. Yeah, we'll right. say that. Oh gosh, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, don't step over a bar. No, don't. What's going on there? Yeah, I don't know. Like like a. Just, a piece of metal, right? You don't step As, over it. Like, maybe it's related to, you know, the Herculean stone, magnetics. Don't step over it. You're, you're messing with the, the feng shui that it possesses. I'm not sure I used that correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of breaking up the, the mojo of the space. That's correct. Okay. You shouldn't do that. Don't step over a bar. No. Right? Um, what, else, what else aren't you supposed to do? Don't eat heart. Anybody's heart. Anybody's heart. Anything's heart. That's right. Okay. That's kind of an obvious one, isn't it? Well, if you're a vegetarian, I think that would kind of go with the program. Yes, right? but even if you're not a vegetarian, uh, have you ever eaten the heart of an animal? No, it's it's usually not on the menu. No. 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 Okay. Also, I'll, also, I'll take them there. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because there's some kind of life in it, right? Now, there's this, this notion of sympathetic magic. You familiar mm. with that? I am. Yeah, where you take on the properties of the thing with which you're associated. Yes. This is why people wear shark teeth. Unless they're just wearing it for decoration. Yes. Right. But you wear a shark's tooth or um, you wear fangs or something because you're supposed to then take on the character of the animal right. that possessed it. Right, right. And so that may be how it is kind of with heart, right? I see. Okay. Isn't there a, isn't there a scene in Dances with Costner where one of the Native Americans kills 
It's a, the, a buffalo? And he, he hands the heart to... Yes, he pulls it out and he's supposed to eat it on the spot. He is. Exactly, right. And I think he does, but he's kind of he's, he's clearly kind of freaked out in that moment. Right. So, uh, who would want to do that? That's right. So, But, but it was considered this great this great honor, this great gift. Right, to right. eat the heart. Yeah. Yeah, Pythagoras would never go he for would, that. He would be shaking his head. And, and be, then the big one. Yeah. Is the metempsychosis. The, uh, uh, the um, he's, well, he's definitely got kind of, he, not just kind of, but... Um, he's into reincarnation. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is another suggestive connection with something you've been teaching recently, yes. right? Which is Hinduism and part of uh, world religions. Right, right, right. And in that. So uh, these ideas, they seem so similar to Eastern, further Eastern ideas. Right. The gymnophism, physicism, and the, um, the transmigration of souls. Souls. Right. And if, even if you compare like uh, core tenets of Taoism and Confucianism, it overlaps with, with Stoicism right. almost to to a to a letter. Right. I mean, that whole notion of live according to nature. Yes. Um, you, that's all over Eastern philosophy right. as well as Western philosophy. So, is yeah. it inheritance or is it independent origin? Right. You know, perhaps we'll never know. Or a wave of nude philosophers migrating across the Bactrian <laughs> Desert. It's possible. A wave. <laughs> yeah. So, metempsychosis: the soul moves and lives somewhere else. Yeah. Or, or transmigration. Right. And that, I mean, that shows up in Plato too. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, you drink, and, you drink from the, wa- the waters of Lethe and you're, you're reborn. Yeah, and Plato is one of our main sources, actually, for Pythagoras' ideas. So without Plato, we'd know much less about Pythagoras right. than we do. Right, right, This episode of Odd Nauseam brought to you uh, by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, the good folks from uh, Portland, Oregon, the same place our shout-out went. Yeah, they to. actually are acquaintances. They are. Mm-hmm. Crazy small, tiny world. But yes, Mar- it is. But Mark Helwig and his his crack team of coffee engineer geniuses, um, th- as we've known for a long time, they've done it. Yes. Yep, they, they've found a way to uh, make affordable, beautiful, works-of-art coffee machines that brew the perfect cup of coffee every single morning. That's right. I would like to quote Tyler Hayes. Who's that? Well, he writes for that venerable news organization, Newsweek. Okay. And this is from the March 19, 2021, so it's a little bit dated, and he says, The Ratio 6 Automatic Coffee Maker. I spent a year making a cup of coffee each morning using the pour-over method because I wanted my black coffee to be smooth and less bitter. I got used to boiling water, measuring out the specified amount of coffee, and then pouring out the corresponding cups of water over the right... I'm bored already. Man. (laughs) Over the right length of time. It's a fiddly process. I'll say. But it allows for more control over how your coffee tastes. The Ratio 6 Coffee Maker promises to recreate the manual pour-over method's enhanced flavor, but to do it all automatically. No fiddly stuff. No, I was intrigued, says Tyler. How could someone not be? Exactly. So does this upscale luxury deliver a worthwhile experience for people who want to enjoy their morning coffee, but typically run low on time and patience? What's Tyler's answer? He says yes. <laughs> the six, the ratio six produces a couple of different coffee makers. It started on the really high end with an eight and worked its way down to the little bit less expensive yet still premium six. Mm. One thing that's clear from both of its machines is that the company is design-focused. I agree. Its coffee makers are gorgeous and provide their own visual stimulants. <laughs> no caffeine needed. <laughs> Tyler. But Tyler, just, you just have to look at the machine and you're ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. So he says, there's a good chance that just seeing a picture of the Ratio 6 will tempt you to make the purchase. I, you know, I, have, to, I have to agree with that. He and got he, that right, didn't it, he? He did. Those, um, just the, the clean aesthetics of the machines are just... Yeah, outstanding. Are. Yep, they grabbed the eye. Did yeah. you have some coffee this morning? I did from my six. Yes, it was, and it was, it was great. I got, so consistent, so, so consistent. I got up early before, um, before all the other people in the house were up. Right, I hit the button, and yeah. it was, it was great. Yeah, one touch. Who, who could you know make coffee with just one 
button press. That's right. Phenomenal. Nothing fiddly about it. No. Yeah. Nope. No Kindle brick. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah. if you listener, uh, audience, you would like to score one of these fantastic machines, you need to go to racialcoffee.com, R-A-T-A-O coffee.com, put the six or the eight in your basket, and to get 15% off, Jeff, what do they have to enter? They type in the uh, the, the, the code ANCO. 6Y. 6Y. Yep. And so um, that's a. Uh, if you've been listening to earlier episodes, there's a slight change in the, in the code. That's, that's right. That's the new code, A-N-C-O-6-Y. And this this code expires uh, April 30. Right. Right? So you gotta, you got to get on there and put in this code and get yourself a fantastic machine. Take advantage. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing Company. Hackett Publishing is now, Jeff, in its 50th year. Exactly. Exactly 50. This, exactly this 50. This is their anniversary year. That's yeah. right. Started in 1972. They've got offices in Indianapolis right here in the heartland. Mm-hmm. It may be smarchy down there in Indiana. We don't know. Probably. But they're going to keep on purveying fine quality books for those who like the classics and so forth. they got an office in Massachusetts. I stopped by the website today, mm-hmm. Jeff, because it's just such an interesting place to be. And guess what I found? What did you find there? I found three incredible volumes right on the landing page. Okay. The first one is one you might like. Which one? Samurai and the Warrior Culture of Japan. That does look extremely interesting. It does. Yeah. And that's kind of how you strike me. Is kind of a you got the samurai spirit. You got the top knot and the you know the silken kimono and yes, the 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 the, the uh, sharp katana at my side. Is right? that what that's called? That, that's the kind of the kind of sword. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. You really do know the samurai. Life. I have I have children who are very interested in this stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, and that, if if you wanted to know more, what would you do? Well, I would buy this book, uh, Samurai and the Warrior Culture of Japan. Right. Um, a, a, sor- sor- right. a source book. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, see. So you also have your uh, in under philosophy. Um, Applied Ethics, an Impartial Introduction. I am so tired of those partial introductions. <laughs> oh, man. Finally, an impartial one. At last, yes. 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 And then all the way over on the right-hand side of the website's landing page is the essential Thucydides. I wonder what they left out. I wonder what the author considered to be non-essential. I'll right, we'll have to ask Paul Woodruff. Yeah. Selections from the History of the Peloponnesian War. So this is a really good snapshot of just everything that Hackett has to offer. You've got... Asian studies, a very fascinating topic, the samurai culture, a source book. You've got applied ethics, and you've got classics proper. Yes. So, so they got it all. They do have it all. And one of the things that we've talked about that we um, we love about Hake is that they don't, when it comes to translation, they don't limit themselves to one translator in one right. volume. They are open to many different takes on the same book, which is, which is great. Yeah, and in fact, tonight, we're going to be quoting from both the Lombardo translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses mm-hmm. and the Ambrose translation. So we'll see this in action. Exactly. Yep. So let's say, Jeff, that one of our audience wants to get a great discounted Hackett, what do they need to do? Well, they got to go to hackettpublishing.com and they got to find their books and drop them into the little digital satchel there. And then if they type in the coupon code, which is... AN2022. That's right. And you'll get two great things, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. You could possibly get three great things. What's that? You get the anniversary tote bag yeah, while right. supplies last. Forgot about the tote. Exactly. So yeah. check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by the Moss Method. Now, Dave, if I wanted to learn some Greek, but I didn't want to you know, go through the paperwork and pay tuition at the local think shop, right. um, how would I go about doing this? The frontisterion. Yeah. Good one, good one. Yes. Well, you could go to mossmethod.com, M-O-S-S method.com. You could watch my numerous free videos. I also have hundreds on my Latin per diem YouTube channel. All manner of uh, Greek scholars I've covered. New Testament, the Septuagint, Genesis, three syllables note. Also, uh, the Greek church fathers, plus you've got 
Homer and uh, Sophocles, so much of my free stuff to start to learn some Greek. But if you want to go deeper, yeah. if you want to go from uh, neophyte to erudite. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. You could sign up for the course. Now, I've got some good news and bad news. Uh, let's start Let's start with the bad news. You want the bad news? Yes. Okay, the bad news is that we have not raised our prices in four years, hmm. despite all of the inflation. So we're going to have a slight price raise here. Okay. We're going to go not just from neophyte to erudite, but from two ninety nine to three twenty five. Okay. Such are such are the times we live in. Exactly. Right? Yes. It's about a twenty six dollar increase. Okay. A couple Big Macs. Okay. That's the bad news. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. But what's the good news then? Well, the good news is we're not raising price until June one. So you got to jump on it now, though. Yes. If you want to take advantage of this, you know, this is the last time we're going to offer Moss at two ninety nine. You want to jump on it right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. You might ask me, what does the course offer? I, I, what does the course offer, Dave? The course offers 40 videos. This is high-level instruction. Everything I have learned in studying and teaching Greek for 30 years now, since mm. 1992. Well, that dates me. Long well, time. Exact, exact date. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I have been learning a lot of Greek, studying a lot of Greek, teaching it. So I'm giving you everything I've learned in these 40 video lessons for the first module, 40 assignments, six quizzes, two exams, and lots of personal contact with me. There's really, uh, there's no reason not to learn Greek. And, you know, I don't want to be a modest, but I think it's fair to say that this is the most comprehensive program available for self-paced uh, learning of Attic and Koine Greek. Sounds great. And in the office hours, right? Oh, yeah, the office hours. They, they can meet uh, with you directly. That's right. right. Yep. Typically on Friday mornings, we get together. Uh, we were reading some New Testament this past week. Uh, we read a lot of different things. Yeah. So you can join, be a part. So how do we go about, how would they go about uh, doing this? They got to go to mossmethod.com okay. and uh, check it out. Check it out. All right, Jeff. So as we get back into it, we have now set the stage. Yes. We have been introduced to the character of Numa mm-hmm. and uh, the Roman king. We've been introduced to the character of Pythagoras, the pre-Socratic philosopher, whose careers did not overlap chronologically. Nevertheless, Ovid has this tradition of putting them close together, and he exploits this in book 15 of his Metamorphoses. Okay. All right. So should we jump right to the text then? And yeah, let's do that. See what we've got going on here? Uh, why don't you read some Latin for us? I would love to do that. So this is from the beginning of book 15. And uh, this, of course, is in the dactylic hexameter, and it would sound something like this. Quiritur interea qui tantae pondera molles, sustineat tanto quequeat sucedera regi, destinat imperio clarum praenuntia verdi, fama numam non illa satis cognosa sabinae, gentis habet ritus animo maior recapaci, concipit et quae sit rerum natura requirit. Very nice. Oh, I got two more lines. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sir, sir. Finish it up. Huias amor curdrae patria curdrabusque relictis, fecit ut herculei penetrarret ad hospitis urbem. Very nice. Thank you. Um, let me uh, let me offer the uh, the Ambrose translation Let's hear of those that. lines. In the meantime, there was a search for one to bear the weight of so great a burden and with the ability to succeed so great a king. Um, so talking about Romulus there. Yeah, right? Romulus is gone, yep. lead ball vanishing. Uh, for supreme power, she who heralds truth, Fama, marks the brilliant Numa. For that man, merely to know the rights of the Sabine people is not enough. With his capacious mind, he conceives of greater works and searches into the nature of things. What, are we back to Lucretius now? Exactly. Did you catch that I in the Rerum Natura? Yes. That's a that's a reference that Ovid, he is uh, elusive. It's a deep cut. Yeah, it is a deep cut. He's he's winking. He's nodding. That's right. Uh, he's nudging that elbow. Bipping and bopping. You want to throw All some of that the, in oh. there? <laughs> 
<laughs> Synchronicity is what it is. Exactly. For love of this pursuit, he left his native Cures behind and went all the way to the city that had been host to Hercules. Yes, and yep. that is the city of Cretona, mm-hmm. way down in the instep of the arch of the boot of Italy. Right. Words to that effect. Right. And so uh, the tradition says that Pythagoras... Um, Pythagoras fled Samos for this particular area, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and now we associate this this place with Numa as well. Yep, Heraclea right? and Croton. They're on the, the Gulf of Tarentum, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Taros was a Spartan colony. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Okay, okay. That's what I remember. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, so there we have Numa, right? Yeah. So now we're going, we're going to be introduced to Pythagoras and get his long sermon about vegetarianism here in book 15. Right, which you you have titled Enter Bland Man. Enter Bland Man. <laughs> That's Pythagoras. Why would I call it Bland Man? Well, I'm tipping my plate, you might say at this okay. point, because I'm not a vegetarian. No, nor am I. And I find the vegetarian diet, we're going to probably get lots of hate mail. Yeah. People are going to send us vegetables in the mail. Um I find it a little bland. Well, but, thank, but he says, you just need to kind of roast up the pipe. There's plenty of spices out there. He does. Yeah, and we're we're going to get into that. Okay, all right. So, and I know and love vegetarians, uh, but yeah, I just thought it would be funny to say, enter <laughs> bland, bland man. man. <laughs> so we got a little bit more Latin. We got some Greek, yes. right? Right, right. Um, Did I say Greek? You, no, no, no. English. English, yes. Um, why don't you I could take some Latin for us here. I'd love to do yeah, that. Right. So this is beginning at line 60 in uh, in the text. Vir fuit hic ortu samaius sed fugeratuna, et samonet dominos orio quaterrana de sexul, spon terat isquilicet caelir regioner remotos, mente deos ariet et quae naturra negabat, visibus huma nisocolise apectoris hausit, cum quanamet wigali perspexerat omnia curra, in medium descenda debat quatusque silentum, dicta quemirrantum magni primordia mundi, Et rerum causas et quid natura docebat, quid deus unde niveis quae fulminus eset origo. So again, more Lucretius. Yes, right? lots of Lucretian allusions and references stuffed in there. Right, and he's going to talk about you know where where do all these uh, things in nature come from? He's going to explain the origins, and not necessarily in terms of the gods. That's right. So we're right. I think we're we're right back to the Lucretius again. Yes, and all of the titles that we came up with for uh, those particular episodes. <laughs> Shebangs and enchiladas. That was and great. That so was great. forth. Yeah. Well, let me um, let me translate. Uh, let me give a translation of those lines. Yeah. So who is this well. that you're reading from? This is from the uh, Lombardo. Ah, Stan. Stan. Okay. Exactly. Whose um, translations of uh, Homer I I like so much. So he translates. There was a man there, uh, Samian by birth, who had fled Samos and its tyrannical rulers and lived in voluntary exile. Though his gods were far away, he visited their region of the sky in his mind. And things that nature denied to human vision, he took in with his inner eye. When he had looked carefully into everything with his awakened heart, he began to teach the silent crowds who listened in wonder as he described the origin of the universe, the causes of things. Ah, causes of things. Yes, what the natural world is and what gods are, where snow comes from, and lightning. Yes, yeah. that's really good. That's very Lombardo's good. an excellent translator. He's got, he's, got this, he's got a way of just kind of boiling it right down right. to the essence. Yep. Don't you want to know where snow comes from? I, I haven't really thought about it. <laughs> I'd like to know where snow goes, frankly. <laughs> it was snowing here this morning. It was. And yesterday. Let's, let's not talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, very Lucretian here. 
Um, I, but I also am very fascinated by this idea that, well, well, how did Pythagoras figure this out? He kind of went on this kind of this almost astral projection journey he did. into the minds of the gods and right. kind of saw everything. And this is very Eastern. It's Isn't like, that it, what Epicurus did, though, too? Uh, exactly. The beginning of Lucretius. He's the one alone who was bold enough to break through the bars and doors of religion and superstition and penetrate into the interstices of the cosmos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It remi- speaking of kind of Eastern connection, it also reminds me... Um, one way in in which uh, Buddha's enlightenment under the tree is understood is that he has this vision of kind of how everything fits together. Like his nirvana mm. um, is his kind of he sees kind of the whole wheel of time in one in one just kind of one fell swoop. He understands wow. it, and so th- it's almost here like Pythagoras has, has not so much maybe like broken through the wall of superstition, but he, again, he, the, the gods have almost kind of beckoned him up and said, "Yeah, we'll give you a look." You're going to get a glimpse. You're going to get a glimpse. Yeah. All right, so there we have Pythagoras introduced, mm-hmm. and now we're going to go through some of the arguments that he gives as to why we should stop eating meat. Okay, now you got to help me out a little bit here before we jump into this. Okay, so he's obviously set up Numa, right? right. And he's kind of talking about about yeah, he, he was he was very wise and and um, uh, a deeper thinker than others and such. And then we jump right to Pythagorean Pythagoras. Says, okay, I'm starting to get the connection. Pythagoras is the is the mentor of Numa. Right. But then he launches into vegetarianism. I mean, what does this have to do with anything? This is one of the things for which Pythagoras is known. Okay, but what does this have to do with Numa? Was Numa a veggie? No. Okay. I, I, I just, I don't understand why he, why Abed kind of But you're getting this. a little touchy here, Winkle. Well, he hits this so hard. Yeah. And I, and I think it maybe it's for a joke because when we get to the end of this part, we will see what Numa actually does okay. with this long sermon All right. from Pythagoras. And it's it's kind of anticlimactic. Okay. Okay. But first we got to get through the arguments. We do. Okay. So what, what is he, what's he, what's he arguing here? Well, the first argument I have called the garden is enough. Right. You don't need the meat. You don't need the meat. Right. So I'm reading from Ambrose. Desist, okay. O mortals. From desecrating with sacrilegious food your bodies, there is grain, there is fruit bending down the branches with its weight, and grapes swollen upon the vines. Sweet herbs there are, and those that flame can soften and make tender, and flowing milk is not denied to you, nor honey, scented with flowering thyme. Extravagant earth lavishes wealth and gentle nourishment and offers feastings without slaughter and blood." All right. So okay. just, just be satisfied with the plant world. The garden is enough. That's right. But he's not a vegan, because you notice we have in here both um, honey and milk. Right. So you, he, uh, he's cool with kind of using the, the products of these That's animals. That's correct. Yeah. And right. I suppose maybe eggs. He doesn't mention eggs. But I would, I, I'm guessing he'd be cool with eggs. Well, I don't know. I, would I don't know. So. Yeah, may, maybe. Maybe he'd be cool with them if he boiled them and put them in the refrigerator or something. Right. I don't know. Right, right, right. (laughs) The second one is, uh, the second argument is only wild creatures eat meat. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want to read a little bit of that from the the, uh, Lombardo? I was reading the Ambrose. Wild animals satisfy their hunger with flesh. Not all of them, since horses and cattle and sheep live on grasses, but wild savage beasts. Uh, Armenian tigers and raging lions, wolves and bears enjoy food dripping with blood. Oh, how wrong for flesh to become other flesh. For a greedy body to fatten on a swallowed body, for one creature to live on another's death, surrounded with riches that the best of mothers, earth herself yields, nothing makes you happy but your cruel teeth tearing at pitiful wounds, and like the cyclops, you cannot satisfy your voracious appetite without destroying another. Mm, well, right. He's, he's, I mean, he's getting angrier and angrier. He is. Yes, this is a Jeremiad, or a, or a Jeremiad? Jeremiad, yes, there it's you go. It's a Jeremiad. Yes. He's just throwing down. So the first argument, the garden's enough. Second one, only wild creatures eat meat. What kind of an animal do you want to be like? Armenian tiger? Armenian tiger tearing and shredding and 
They're like the T-Rex, you know? And then the exclamation point at the end of this is like a cyclops. Yes, the third argument. Don't be a cyclops. Yeah. Linky Club says who, who wants to be a, or no Linky Club says Who wants to be a cyclops, right? Yeah. Guts, sunken guts. And of course, Ovid tells the story of um, the cyclops and his cave, you know, previously in the book. And that's his main point is yeah. he sunk he sunk my guts in his guts. <laughs> Is what he says. And it's played for comedy once again. Right. But here it seems to be just, you know, uh, dead earnest, Mm -hmm. really. And then he goes on to to compare that uh, to be a vegetarian is as if to live in the golden age. That's right. Right. The golden age was vegerific. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There was no need for hunting or killing in the golden age. It was just, you know, nature kind of offered its bounty and the the grapes dropped into your hands. That's right. But that earlier time, this is Ambrose, we call the golden age with fruit from the trees and herbs from the ground was happy, nor did it pollute mouths with blood. In those days, birds moved their wings in safety through the air, and in the open fields the hare roamed without fear, nor did its own credulity suspend the fish upon the hook. Isn't that nice? That is nice. That poor fish, he's just so gullible, right? (laughs) I'll, I'll take that bait. I don't see that shiny hook. Yeah. No creature lay in wait to attack or feared any guile, and all were filled with peace. There you have it. There you have it. Yep. I mean that's straight out of that's straight out of Hesiod. Right? Yes, um, absolutely. And, but you find that the world over, um, you know, most most cultures that have you know an origin story or creation story that survives posits that the world began as you know, yeah, again, pure nature, right? And perfection was in a garden, right? And Pythagoras says there's no reason why we can't mimic that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But then a useless inventor arose. Do you have that portion there in the uh, the Lombardo? Lombardo says then some useless person comes along. Okay. Right. Right. Um, then some useless person started to envy lions for their victims and stuffed his greedy belly with flesh. Yeah, I wish they had named this guy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's was... funny, though, because there are a lot of firsts in the metamorphoses, a lot of inventors, right? Daedalus is the True. archetypical inventor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's his nephew, Perdix, who invents the saw from a fish. Yeah. And there's Triptolemus, who invents agriculture. And you've got all these amazing inventors. But this one... Because he's done something heinous, according mm. to Pythagoras, he's anonymous. Yeah, he's a he's a exact. That's really interesting. But like he, like he, the guy that invented the Cabbage Patch dolls. <laughs> we don't want to know his name. No, no, exactly. History should forget forget his exactly. name. Exactly, these were terrifying, yeah. <laughs> horrifying. They looked like potatoes. They did look like potatoes, but they, they also looked like they would come alive at night and, and yeah, stab you. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, but this is this is a um, this is kind of an, an Adam figure, right? This is the guy right. who kind of ruined it all. Um, some useless person started to envy lines for their victims and stuffed his greedy belly with flesh, blazing a trail for sin. What is, um, what, how does Ambrose translate that? Uh, let's Bla- see. Blazing a trail for sin? Mm, laid the path to crime. Laid he, the path to crime, okay. Within his greedy belly, a meal of flesh and laid the path to crime. Yeah. It is possible that weapons were first warm and bloodstained from killing beasts. Mm. That should have been enough. I admit that creatures that try to kill us may themselves be killed without incurring guilt. Okay, so he makes an exception here. So if a bear's coming after you, yeah, bear's coming after bear you. Bear down. Do what you got to do, right? <laughs> but while they may be killed, don't eat them. Yeah. All right. It's interesting because uh, my daughter asked me recently, she said, do you think it's okay to kill animals if you don't eat them? Hmm. And you know, children are uh, deep philosophers. Mm-hmm. They really are. Your children, I'm sure, are the same way. They think deeply about stuff, not all the time, but no. sometimes. So we had an interesting conversation. I said, well, sometimes, you know, I mean, if if uh, I have a hard time not being silly, right? If a giraffe comes to the door and wants to trample you, I may have to take it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. No. You know, so, so sometimes maybe it's okay to kill an animal. 
She, and she said, well, you know, my teacher was talking to me about X or Y. And I said, well, I, I agree with the teacher on the whole. The principle is don't be wasteful. Yeah. But there may be some time when you... I mean, all those, you know, the Jaws movies and the Jurassic Park movies. Yes. Did they eat all those creatures after they dispatched them? No, they did not. I don't think so. No, no, there was no barbecue no. of the Velociraptor. But now, I, my, you grew up as kind of a, a backwoodsman, didn't you? Sport, a, a sport little, hunting? A little bit. A little bit? I had the coonskin cap as you, a kid. Yeah, but did you go out like in November and shoot? I did that stuff. Okay. Yep, yep. And did you skin and eat the deer, or? Um, I never have actually shot in a deer. Okay. I have skinned and uh, eaten other animals, or okay. almost eaten other animals. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't go too deep into that. Okay, all right, all right, all right, yeah. Um, I, my, my son also, not, not too long ago, was kind of positing that, you know, it might be wrong, it might be cruel to eat animals, but he was doing this as he was picking pepperoni off a piece of pizza, <laughs> putting it in his mouth, yeah, not realizing the deep irony of, oh, of that. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. Yeah, well, it kids, was. Kids pick up a lot of things, you know? Yep, it's true. Right. All right. So the next argument is... Yes, um, he, he's got something against uh, uh, pigs. Well, the pig, yeah. you know, got eaten first. And uh, Ambrose says, from that beginning, this wickedness spread. And the sow is thought to have deserved to die as the first victim because she uprooted the seeds with her spreading snout and cut short the hope of the year. So it uh, ruined the harvest. Ruined the garden. Yeah. Right. Oh, those pigs. <laughs> yeah. I was reading um, earlier today, I was reading uh, A.S. Klein's translation right. of this. And his translation... It's the poetry and translation side. Yes. Right? Um, he, his translation suggests here that it's... Um, not just punishing the pig, but kind of this is a reason why you often see pigs in sacrifices because they, oh. this kind of gives you the 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 the, the moral right to kill. They're the pig. a nuisance. They're a nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Not a lot of pigs in our contemporary setting. Although, you know, I was raised on a farm that raised hogs. Yeah. A lot of them. Aren't they said to be fairly smart? They are Bridget? very smart yeah. and unbelievably strong. Really. I don't mean smart like Pythagorean theorem smart, yeah. but I mean they they take good care of their. Um, their living quarters, you hmm. know, their pens and so forth. They separate their waste from their consumption. Hmm. But they're omnivores. They'll, yeah, 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 yeah. They will eat each other. Oh, really? And they will eat you. <laughs> you asked before if I liked horror films in the last episode. Yes. No. You, you said no. And um, if you go into, you know, a confinement uh, hog pen and you sit down and you don't move. They will eat you. You'll be gone by the next day. That There's a horror movie right there. That's right. <laughs> I don't know what it would be called. But. So I can I can sympathize a little bit with Pythagoras's point. You know, maybe the pig had it coming. Mm -hmm. uh, but the goat also, right? The yes. goat also maybe had it coming. Right. And this also strikes me that, you know, the, the pig and the goat also find their way into like like satanic symbolism. I suppose. And I wonder kind of the, if the, the kind of those, those animals being, I don't know, unclean or undesirable, yeah. that symbolism transfers there. Well, the goat is known for its fertility, you know, because... Mm. They they never reach a, a stage of life where they're infertile. Okay, all right. They can continue having kids until they die. Can you read the part about the goat? Yes. Yeah, so the goat, um, this is uh, Lombardo again. The goat was led to slaughter at the avenging altar because it browsed Bacchus's vines. So it <laughs> snacking on grapes? Is that what's going on? Yeah, that doesn't seem like the goat really deserved it. But... it was just he was just window shopping, right. browsing. Right. <laughs> Their own faults brought harm to both. Right. Says Ambrose. Have you ever eaten goat? I have. I like goat a lot. Yeah, I, I do too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I have, uh, you know, extended family members who are uh, from the Caribbean. And yeah. goat's a delicacy in many places. Right. I remember at um, one 
Classics Jamboree in Madison, Wisconsin, went to a Nepalese restaurant oh, yeah. and had a goat dish, and it was wonderful. Yeah, that's right, though. But I, I as I was eating, I was saying, "Oh, this this thing deserved it." Right? <laughs> <laughs> Browse Bacchus's vines. Yeah, exactly. How dare you? But he goes on and says, "Though these two, that is the pig and the goat, paid for their guilt." Mm-hmm. But then he says. But what about the poor sheep? What, right. do they, what do they do? The other animals are innocent. This, <laughs> right. is, is Ovid being funny here or what? It's hard not to laugh at this, but that should, could just be could be me. He says, why have you deserved ill, you sheep and peaceful flock? A little apostrophe. He's going to talk to the sheep. Uh, created to nurture humanity, you bring that nectar. You that bring nectar with udders full, who furnish us for soft raiment, your wool, and help us more with your life than with your death. Why have the oxen deserved ill, animals without offense or deceit, not harmful, simple, born to endure work? So you see the cow, right, is a, a really morally high quality individual, according to Pythagoras. Yes. So how could you eat him? Right. He goes on to talk about how, um, cows or oxen used in these, in these elaborate sacrifices where they're decorated with ribbons, and then I thought this was a nice touch for Pythagoras, says they sprinkle on their brow... Uh, the very grains that they helped to, yes. to cultivate, you know, what the ultimate insult. It's, it's cruel. Right. And then they bring the axe down on that on the poor animal's head. Right. Yeah. Have you seen... Um, so much pathos. So much pathos. It, this reminds me of, the, of the, one of the final scenes in Apocalypse Now. Have you seen Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now? Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Winkle, the answer is always... Is it always no? No. But, if there's some element of pop culture, I probably don't know it. There is a violent tribal sacrifice of, of, an, of, a, of an oxen at the end of that, which is brutal. Huh. Yes. And it's not... Uh, they could not put the the, uh, the the claim that no animals were hurt in the filming mm. of that because this was a, the real deal. That, so yeah, what what was the uh, episode that we released where you had an Apocalypse Now uh, spoof title? Uh, that was a Cropol- uh, no Necropolis Now. Necropolis Now, no, yeah. very early, very successful. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice job. Yeah. So the cow didn't have it coming. What else? Um, well, yeah, who else kind of is uh, Pythagoras should be off the hook here. Um, well, he goes on and on about the the the, the these animals being used in, sac- in sacrifices, sheep and, and oxen, mm-hmm. um, and, and how unjust it is. Um, but he says, uh, let's see here. So this is where monumental mortal hunger for forbidden food you dare feed, O humans. Do not, I beg you, turn your minds instead to my admonitions. And when you put the flesh of slaughtered cattle into your mouths, know you are devouring your fellows. Mm. So he makes a kind of a, a, an equivalence uh, uh, between humans and animals. Right. right. They're, they're, we are all soul bearers. That's right. Yeah. So then we have all of these arguments, but then there are just a couple more before he gets near the, you know, the really high-strung rhetorical conclusion. So okay. humans implicate the gods in their bloodthirsty slaughter. So this is part of the origin story of religion. Why was ritual sacrifice invented? Because humans want to eat meat. So let's pretend that there's a religious goal, and we'll give the gods a little bit, but then we'll just eat a lot of meat. Right, right. Another one is um, don't eat meat because of soul migration, right? Yeah. Metempsychosis. This is really what the whole thing is driving at, because, as we'll see in a minute, you might end up eating a family member. That's right, exactly. You might end up eating a family member, but it takes several pages for Pythagoras to get this point out, because remember... One of Ovid's main purposes is to demonstrate his mythological uh, encyclopedic knowledge. He's showing off. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Callimachus, mm-hmm. right? You, you have to show off the geography and the myth that you know. And here's yet another uh, opportunity to do that. All right. Okay. And then we come right down to the end of it, and we're going to get to the big peroration or the sermon. Okay. And uh, can I read a little bit of, of the Latin there? Would that be all right? I would hope you would. Yes. All right. 
So this is line 456. And uh, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, just a little bit. So, Nos quoquipars mundi quoniam non corpora solum, veretiam volucresana mai sumus inquiferinas, possumus ira domos pecadum quin pectora condi, corpora quae possint animas habuissaperdentum, out fra trout aliquo junctorum foidera nobis, out hominum certe tu tests et honestus inamus. Nevithi este is cumulemus whiskera mainsis. Nicely done. Lots of elisions in there. Yes. And then we got the thiestes. I should say mainsis at the end there. Yes. Um, and this is from Lombardo's translation. It says, We too are a part of the world. And since we are, not only bodies, but winged souls can and, and can reside in wild animals and lodge in the hearts of cattle, let us treat with respect bodies that could have held the souls of our parents or brothers or of those joined to us by some bond, or of humans at least, and not glut ourselves on Thyestean banquets. Yeah. Right. Interesting that uh, in the Ambrose translation, he says, those joined to us by marriage bond. Hmm. So you can't even eat the in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a little unfair. <laughs> right? So, I mean, he mentions, <laughs> right, ancestors' souls that could be your brothers, that could be your parents, even someone who's just kind of remotely connected to you. Yeah. You, you don't want to end up eating the guy that... Uh, you know, sold you a burger yesterday. <laughs> right, right. And then by making this connection to Thyestes, um, he uh, he underlines the fact that to, to eat animals in some ways is a kind of cannibalism. It is absolutely cannibalism, yep. according to Pythagoras. So everyone knows the story of uh, Atreus and Thyestes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Atreus, the father of Menelaus and Agamemnon. Um, what does Thyestes do? He sleeps with Atreus's... Um, wife. Wife, yes. Yes, whose name I can't remember right Black now. I can't, too. But in order to get revenge for this adultery, Atreus takes the children of Thyestes and uh, kills them and boils them and serves them to Thyestes at table. Come on over for a meal. <laughs> of course, Thyestes is shocked when uh, Atreus says, so you like that food? Oh, it's, it's delicious. That's your children. Right. Yeah. So he, he just waits for the big, awful reveal. And that's right. Yeah. That's the Thyestean feast. So that's, that's the reference here. Right. So what do you think, Winkle? What do I think? I mean, are you off meat now? Um, no, I still like meat. Okay. I, I, I still, uh, I still like my, my, my fried chicken. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not off it, but this is, I'm not going to go out and eat it right now because <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm put off it in the moment. Right. Yeah. Right. But we got to know, uh, how did Numa respond to this? Right. So this is going to tie it all together, right? That's right. So, so We're going to see the, you know, the shock. So, so what did, how, how did Numa react to this? So what, what do we got here? Right. Well, I want to read just two lines of the Latin. Okay. So Pythagoras has finished his big sermon, and then just two lines in which Ovid tells us what Numa's response to all of this uh, electrifying instruction was. Okay. Sacrificos docuit ritus gentem queferuci, ad suetam bello pacis traduxit ad artes. And that would be, what, uh, 83 and 84, 483 and uh, 484. Okay. And you have the uh, Lombardo translation there. So let me just start uh, with the translation a little bit before what you read. Excellent. So uh, Lombardo translates, They say that Numa returned to his own land with these and other teachings in his heart. And when he was asked, he assumed the reins of the Latin state. Happy with the Nymphigeria as his wife, blessed by the muses of Italy, he made mild a rough people and introduced them to sacred rituals and the arts of peace. Right. Okay. So how does he respond to all of this teaching about vegetarianism? Well, in the fourth or fifth line after the sermon is over, Sacrificos dacovit ritus. He taught them the rites of sacrifice. So that's what he, that's what he got from this. Right. 
Apparently, <laughs> he didn't learn a thing. Nothing. He learned nothing. Hmm. He is the institutor of the whole Roman sacrificial system, which depends upon the slaughter of animals. Right. Right. So, so is what's Ovid up to? Is it a big joke? Well, I wonder. Is it a I critique? Can't, I can't tell. It can't be an actual critique of Roman religion any more than the epilogue to the Metamorphoses is an actual critique of um, Augustus. But in the epilogue on Augustus, you know, he compares Augustus to some fairly unsavory characters from classical myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and now, you know, Numa listens to Pythagoras rail for hundreds of lines about, oh, don't eat meat, and religion is just a scheme for killing animals. And Numa goes back to Rome and, well, let's set up the sacrificial system and kill some animals. <laughs> I don't really understand. I mean, as a, I mean, I, I kind of like it as a joke because it's got such an absurdly long setup. You're right. Right. So hundreds of lines. Yes. Making exactly the opposite point. And what is Numa's takeaway? Uh, let's, let's eat some meat. That's right. <laughs> and I, I think part of it is, I don't know, but it, it could be that the joke partly works because the Greeks and the Romans are so different. Hmm. Right. There's the constant envy that the Romans have of Greek cultural success. True. You can see it in the Aeneid, right? In book six about uh, De Bellara Superbis, etc. Parcara Subjectis et De Bellara Superbos. The, the Romans are supposed to impose order and beat down the proud. The Greeks are going to be better painters and sculptors and scientists and everything. Right. And now Ovid's saying, yeah, Pythagoras, all your long-winded and high-flung philosophy about don't do this and this is un- immoral and so forth. And the Romans are just very... Very practical. Right. So we're going to do that. So you think it, it could be a kind of a, a, a chin flip in Pythagoras' direction? I think so. Yeah. And maybe toward Greek philosophy in general. Interesting. It could be, I could be you know, going too far with that argument, but something's got to explain the fact that all of this about Pythagoras just had no impact on Numa. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Yeah, it is. I think it is funny. Yep. Yeah. Another way to explain it is just, well, Ovid wanted to talk about Pythagoras. He did. Then he talked about Numa and made no effort to connect the two episodes. But I don't find that persuasive because he's the consummate artist. Right. He could do anything he wanted. Right. Exactly. Right. And I think also that, um, I mean, I certainly had this, this sense when I first started studying um, you know, classical literature is that my sense is, well, you got to approach this stuff with the utmost seriousness. Right. Right. The, you know, even the fact that it's in Latin suggests it's got a, kind of a loftiness. And it so, does. So to look for a joke is almost to insult it. But now, you know, I, I, I don't think that way at you all. You see jokes everywhere. You see jokes everywhere. And I, and I think it's it's part of the artistry. Right. So especially having talked to, you know, Robert Mack the other episode there, <laughs> I think he would uh, he would appreciate kind of the long setup and then just the the, the balloon is just popped. It's in, very anachromatic. In two lines. Yep. Yes. Yep. And so he taught them the rites of sacrifice. Yeah. All right. Hmm. Well, I did a little bit of digging around. Okay. And uh, I was going to see how does uh, Pythagoras' arguments for vegetarianism stand up to some modern arguments? Yeah. So for me, modern is uh, 1980. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up a very famous philosopher. Well, well Peter Singer is kind Peter of... Peter Singer. He's the, kind of the um, um, the firebrand of... He's well known. Of, ...of veganism, right? Yes, he yes, is. Yes. Right. So his article, Utilitarianism and Vegetarianism, Philosophy and Public Affairs, 1980, Volume 9, Number 4... He says, quote, I am a utilitarian, right? That is uh, the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. Yes. Or in this case, maybe creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, to continue the quote, I am also a vegetarian. I am a vegetarian because I am a utilitarian. I believe that applying the principle of utility to our present situation, especially the methods now used to rear animals for food and the variety of food available to us, leads to the conclusion that we ought to be vegetarian. Hmm. 
So I, two comments about this. Yeah. Uh, one is, I don't think it's bad reasoning necessarily, though I don't agree with the conclusion. It's much less interesting than Ovid. Oh, totally less interesting. Right? right. I, I don't know much about Peter Singer, but I have a good sense that he does not believe in the existence of souls. <laughs> Probably right? not. Probably not. No. Yeah. And uh, it's just a comment on what's the correct way to consume philosophy? Yeah. Well, we've lost something if it's not dressed up in you know brilliant uh, Latin hexameters. The the if you're gonna if you're gonna give someone hard medicine, you got to put the honey in the lip, lip, lip of the cup, right? That's right. That's yeah. Lucretius. So yes, yeah, so give me give me Ovid any day. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and the second point is that um, he quickly he quickly slides from I am a vegetarian to the conclusion that we ought to be vegetarian. That is kind of a that's a it's a it is a very quick move he makes there. Well, but I guess yeah. if you're a utilitarian. What's, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. <laughs> I mean, that's the wrong <laughs> metaphor. Uh, but Numa would have none of this. No. Right? A very interesting argument, Singer. And now I need to institute the Roman system of sacrifice. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, I'm with Numa. All right. Yeah. Hey, we got to get out of here, man. Oh, my goodness. We're, this has turned into a long, long... We're over time. And once again, I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface. We did not. I mean, there a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff here. We go, didn't, listener, go and read book 15. That's right. Of the Men of Orphans. There's so much interesting We didn't stuff. even cut down near the bone. We, we And we completely ignored the, the part about... The, the 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 peoples the the far flung peoples when they urinate it turns to stone really right? oh yeah there's all kinds of weird stuff going on <laughs> on the fringes right so you're gonna want to read this okay right all right so as we got we're gonna wrap up yep. right yep and uh, here's the billion dollar idea uh, which oh, yeah. is actually Mrs Noe's idea yes what is it well she uh, correctly noted that there are two crazes going on right now in the food world okay the one craze is the macaroni and cheese craze have you seen this. That's a craze now? It is a craze. Okay. Everywhere and every place and every restaurant is pushing macaroni and cheese. Okay. It's a COVID holdover, the ultimate comfort food. Yes. Right. Sit down and eat a big bowl of pasta with cheese. Yeah. It's not vegan. It's vegetarian. Yeah. And the other really big food trend is uh, avocados. Oh, yes. Now I have my aware Avocados of that. are going crazy. And they're putting them on toast, right? That's this, right. That? Yeah. So why don't we combine them, <laughs> guacaroni and cheese. <laughs> That would actually taste really good. It would. Can it you would. imagine a mac and cheese that is, you know, it has uh, it has avocado, guacamole, and, and instead of the cheese, or maybe, you know, reduce the cheese a little bit and put the guacamole in? Yeah. Guacaroni and cheese. That, that is a billion dollar idea. It's a billion dollar idea right you there. You should not have shared that because... Well, someone out there is going to Jump on that and... and and make make a make a million. Yeah, and yeah. then we're going to have them as a sponsor, and you know, during the commercial break, we'll be plugging guacaroni and cheese. <laughs> I can't wait for that day. All right, uh, we got to get out of here. Oh my! Big thanks to Mishka as always. Big thanks to Ken and Scott for the great music. Um, keep the um, we've been we've been getting a steady flow of of, of shout outs. Yes, we're thankful for that. Candidates, yep. please send them along. But, so so write to to Dave at davidadnauseum Don't forget the V or Jeff at the same Jeff at adnauseum with the V. Uh, next week, are we going back to Ovid? Maybe for one more round? Or what we, do you think? Are we going to do one more vignette or two one, more? One more vignetti. Yeah, exactly. I think is the proper pronunciation. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe we could do maybe we could do two. You could choose one. I could choose one. Okay. But we'll we'll talk it out. Oh, we'll yeah. talk it out. No but, big whoop. But a um, little more Ovid, and then um, looking forward to our epic treatment of the Aeneid. Yeah, we're going to turn to the Aeneid. Yes. Right. I don't know if that's going to take forty or forty-five episodes. Uh, but I'm not w- really however sure. long it takes, I think Kara will enjoy it. That's right. Yeah. And Dave, you got our gustatory parting shot today. I do. It's from someone named Tyler Cord, yeah. and his uh, the title of his work is A Super Upsetting Cookbook About Sandwiches. I love that. That's really nice. And here's what he says. It's important to achieve balance in sandwiches, because who really knows how to achieve it in life? 
Life is messy, difficult, occasionally great, but mostly upsetting and out of your control. But you can always make a good sandwich, and a good sandwich will make you happy. It's very stoic. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. You like making sandwiches? I love making sandwiches. I love it, too. With avocado. Yes, an architectural accomplishment. Thanks for listening. Thanks.